0: Good morning. Nice to see all of you. If you're visiting, we're very glad to have you. If you have a Bible, please open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands. You can raise it and we'll get one to you. Please feel free to keep it. But we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we continue in this series called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church... One of the things that we've been endeavoring to do is to see what the Bible teaches about the local church. What does it mean to be us? And also, the history of the church and the Bible shows us that churches can exist on a spectrum of health, from unhealthy to, to radiantly healthy. And we can think of Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus writes the seven letters to the seven churches, and he actually commends them for some good things, but he actually threatens them because of sins that they're entertaining such that if they don't repent, he's going to remove the lampstand of those churches. So it matters to Jesus that we as a band of gospel believers, it matters w- how we live as us and what it means to be us. And so that's why this series is called Features of a Faithful Church and ecclesia is the word, the Greek word for, for church. Well, we've finished looking at, for a number of weeks, the keys of the kingdom. And now we are shifting our attention to another feature of a faithful church, and that is preaching. And in this case, if you're taking notes, it's preaching all of Christ from all of Scripture. And we will be in this text, 2 Timothy 3. We'll begin in verse 12, but we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 this week and next week. Lord willing. So without further ado, I want to set the text before us, pray, and we'll get to work in the word. Uh, we'll pick up in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, and then I read down to 4, 5. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, And by Jesus' appearing, and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for the amazing gift that your word is. Priceless, wonderful, complete, and perfect. And Lord, thank you for the gift of preaching. That you have designed and intended that your word would be preached. And so we pray this morning as we think about what your word tells us. As we fit it together. As we seek to faithfully apply your word to our lives so that we might be a faithful church. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us and correct us by your spirit and accomplish your purposes, magnify Jesus in this place, lift up the downcast and bind the hearts of the brokenhearted, and that you would bring from death to to life and dark to light those who don't yet know you, and for all of us that our souls would be satisfied in you alone. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus name. Amen. He's 19 and he really wants to find a good church and what he wants out of a church besides a wife, is really good music. The most important for him, the most important thing that he thinks to help uh, find a church, the true evidence of a spirit of the spirit being in the church he thinks and assumes is the quality of the music and the setting of the sanctuary lights off purple lights on slight fog blowing through the sanctuary slick and timed out music very good for him that is the definition of what to look for in a church and so So, he church hops and shops around to find the church that will satisfy the emotional needs that he has to have a certain type of worship experience. And he'll find churches that will brand themselves as offering a certain type of worship experience. That's what he thinks is most important to look for in a church. Or there's these parents. And for them, the most important quality of a church is youth ministry, middle school and high school. Now on the face of it, that's a good thing. But if you begin to dig around and scratch beneath the surface, for the parents, they actually have no intention of bringing their kids to church. In fact, these parents think that middle school and high school ministry is sufficient to categorize and qualify as church. And Their intention is really just to let their kids choose what feels best to them. So they're not really concerned if anything is taught or what is taught or what happens in youth ministry. They just, for them, if their kids are happy going to middle school or high school group, that is sufficient to define a good church. Is that the right category of defining a right church, a faithful church? Or how about these people? They're retired, recently relocated, and what's most important to them, coming from the big city that they came from in Southern California, is to find a church that seems prominent in the community, that belonging to this church would give a certain measure of prestige they're looking for a church where important people and businessmen and businesswomen go to, and they're successful, and, and they're looking for the church where the beautiful people are, who have the right clothes and seem to fit in. And this right church for this retired couple is, is also a church that's not going to make very many demands on their lives, not going to ask too much from them beyond a the tithe. But they're also looking for a church that's going to have many amenities to avail themselves of that will really supplement their retirement. This is what is most important to this couple as they're looking for a church. And the question before us is, what would Jesus say? What does Jesus, in his word, expect of believers to look for in a faithful church? Is there a primary quality? There's many qualities, but is there a central, lead, essential feature of a true and faithful church? Now, I'm not saying the sole and only feature of a faithful church. There actually are more features we're going to look at in this sermon series. But I'm asking, if everything was stripped away, what still must remain for Jesus to be pleased? For us to be obedient to what his word says? Or maybe to put it from a different direction, what is essential to starting and building a church? If we were planting this church and we were six months old, what would be central and essential for the planting and flourishing of this church? And the argument of this message from Scripture is this, the essential, essential feature of a true and faithful church is the prayerful preaching of all of Christ from all of Scripture. That is the sin qua non. That is, that is what must define us above all things. I'm arguing from Scripture and church history that the central, but not sole, feature of a faithful church is a church that celebrates, devotes, and promotes the preaching and teaching of the entire council of the Christ-focused inspired Bible. I said a moment ago, appealing to church history, when the Reformation happened, the Protestant Reformation, and the gospel of justification by faith alone and Christ alone was recovered, the reformers were asking themselves, what are the marks of a true gospel church? And they came up with three. Mark number one, the right preaching of the word. Mark number two, The right use of baptism and the right use of the Lord's Supper. And mark number three, the right exercise of church discipline. Does that sound familiar if you've been around recently? Those are the marks the Reformers established to be the true visible evidences of a faithful church. And that first mark, the right preaching of the word, is what we're looking at now. And really, it's just drawn from the Bible. If you've been listening along, in one sense, this sermon builds and expands on the second sermon in this series. There we were in Matthew 16, and we saw that Jesus' intent with the gospel is to build his church. So gospel, the gospel is not just meant for conversions of coming to Christ, the gospel is meant to make and shape disciples of Christ bound together as a local church. Now, our our focus is shifting to see why Jesus has designed of all the things that he could have done. He could have sent an angel. He could have done something else. Why did Jesus, why has God invented preaching? Why is preaching and teaching, but specifically preaching, central in the life of the church? That's what this week and next are aiming to explore. And to give a peek ahead... This sermon and next week's sermon is laying the foundation of looking at preaching and teaching for the role and function primarily of pastor elders in the life of the church when we get to there. But, but here's why, in part, this is important. Many of you know that, that my family and I moved here from Portland, Oregon, one of the least churched regions in the United States. And when, I, when we moved there for seminary um, a decade and a half ago, one of the hot topics was preaching is passe. Preaching should not be done anymore. It's so religious. And so having a, uh, a pulpit and using the word pulpit and a big box that hides the torso of the person who's preaching, it's just so religious that we need to get rid of that. And we need to have a dialogue and a conversation and we need to see how you feel and all these different things. And so that was the behind the scenes in seminaries, future pastors and preachers were arguing about whether we preach or not. So it actually is a big deal because you see the fruit of those last 15 years now making inroads into churches that, well, get rid of the pulpit. And it reminds me of something interesting about, and this is also the introduction, by the way. And, and this is, if you study the history of the interior design of churches, for the first 300 years of our existence, we were basically running for our lives. We were outlaws in defiance to Caesar, declaring that Christ was Lord, not Caesar. And there was pockets of persecution, sometimes in some places for the first 300 years, you could um, find a meeting house or something along those lines. But what Christianity was no longer illegal, and then for the next Middle Ages and on with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, here's what happened. In the early church, preaching was central. But then with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, and basically from the 500s to the 1500s, for that thousand years, the Dark Ages, the pulpit was no longer central in the life of the church. The pulpit was moved off to the side... And a table was placed in front instead. It was the central and essential feature of the Roman Catholic Church. And the table was for the Eucharist. And the Eucharist, with the wrong Roman Catholic theology of a re-sacrifice of Christ and more, became the reason the people assembled. And at the Reformation, what happened is the Reformers once again moved the Lord's table, as important as it is, And now they rightly redefined it, as it is biblically. They moved the table back to the side and put pulpits back in the middle of the churches, even building what are called flying pulpits, which are in the air, which have stairs going into them, so that the the symbolism was not about the guy speaking, but about who is being spoken of, namely Jesus Christ. That Jesus is speaking to us from his word. The reason I point that out is especially since the 60s, in the Jesus people movement, and the rise of, of the water, modern worship movement. And in the last 20 years, there has been a shift in many seeker-sensitive megachurches that once again sideline the pulpit. They don't even have pulpits anymore because it's religious. And a new piece of architecture or interior design is now becoming prominent in many churches in the West, and it is the guitar and the microphone for singing. And the primacy of preaching the word of God is sidelined to all the feels that we can feel with rightly strung together songs. That we should feel the feels, but we should do them because we're singing the Bible and more. And I'm not arguing for, um, against uh, good craftsmanship and musicians, musicianship, but I am saying that what is central in the life of the church is preaching. And so um, if you've ever wondered why when I go to church... In some churches, this is what we do for most of the service, and why is this in the middle of the room and more? It's because of this. So let's talk about terms for a moment. Preaching is not teaching, but preaching involves teaching. Teaching is different. Teaching involves introducing and explaining and making sense of new ideas and integrating those ideas. But preaching is a whole different animal. Preaching involves teaching, as I said, but it also includes passionate exhortation that you ought, moral obligation, to put into practice and believe what is preached. Preaching involves rebuke, both for wrong ideas and wrong motives. Preaching involves correction and more, and we'll see more of that next week. And so whereas teaching may involve dialogue, preaching is a one-way street. Because preaching is being a herald on behalf of someone else, King Jesus. Preaching is not a dialogue, it's proclamation, it's an edict of the king, it's divine fiat that comes from the book to us. Now preaching can occur in a very small group, it can occur in front of thousands upon thousands, but the point of the message this morning is that true, biblical, Christian preaching is preaching all of Christ from all of Scripture, and that is the central defining feature or mark of a faithful church. So if you're taking notes, here's the outline. That was the introduction. You're welcome. The outline comes to us in four parts this morning as we take a first pass through this passage, and we'll look at it again next week. Number one, we will see the central charge to preach. Number two... We're going to look at what is to be preached. Number three, who is to be preached. And number four, we will close our time with the benefits of preaching. Let's jump right in and see once again with our own eyes and ears the charge to preach. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Now the apostle is writing to Pastor Timothy. He's an apostolic delegate. He's going to spend years in Ephesus, essentially planting this church, gathering a team of elders, and establishing deacons, and more for this church to be healthy and established. And so we're reading this pastoral epistle and seeing what must be in a faithful and fruitful church. Beginning in verse 1, he declares, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, notice the charge. The charge given here is not to Timothy, establish. I charge you in the name of the triune God, establish personal Bible reading programs. You should do that. It's very important. The charge here is not to establish small group Bible studies. We should do that. Those are good. The charge here is not to establish specialized classes. We do that. There's one going on right now in the fireside room, and we have two on Wednesday nights. We should do those. But notice what is essential. When all is stripped away, what must we do? The charge here is singular. Preach the Word. That's the charge. I charge you in the presence of God. And listen, that that word, charge, is a lightning bolt. It is electrifying. It is a command of marching orders. And he says, not just that I charge you to preach the word, but he is marshalling, the apostles marshalling all of heaven. He's marshalling God himself as the weight behind this command. As if, Timothy, if you don't do this, preacher, if you don't do this, church, if you don't expect this, then you are not being faithful to the charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge, the living and the dead, by Jesus' appearing, by Jesus' kingdom, preach. The word charge, it's what's supposed to happen. So to not preach The word would be a dereliction of duty, not just for Timothy, but even for the church to abandon the purpose. There could be no greater weight in forcing this charge than the apostle calling upon the searching gaze, the attentive ears and ever presence of God the Father, of God the Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus's impending judgment, by which Jesus will judge the living and the dead with this word and even the kingdom itself. So the question is, if we step back from the text and look at this, how important is faithful preaching to God who inspired this word? Well, it's important enough that the triune God himself has a vested interest in it. His gospel plan is pulled together such that when the word is preached, because of this charge, there's a gravitational force and orbital center for the life of the church. Preach the word. Why? Because preaching all of Christ from all of Scripture Lays forth all of the gospel in all of its fullness for all of the church. Preaching the gospel from all the Bible is how God makes and shapes disciples of Jesus and binds us together as one body. Here we sit. The one body of Christ, the one word goes forth, and this word feeds our souls, builds our souls, brings people from death to life and more, and unites us around this word, and Jesus builds us. In God's amazing grace, he, he could have sent angels to be preachers, he could have done something else, but, but God has seen fit to choose fallible, in the middle of our sanctification, human agents to be his heralds of the kingdom. So there's a charge to preach. But is this charge simply for Timothy to go into his closet and preach to himself? You you know that it's not. You know that there's an implicit, there's an equal charge to the church. Because the church is listening in. This, This letter of 2 Timothy comes to the church in Ephesus and it's delivered and then... Timothy reads it to the whole church, and he's reading about his charge to himself, and the church is supposed to what? Expect this. So the charge to preach, then, has binding authority on you. The charge to preach presents an equal charge to the church, which is feast. Feast. The church is supposed to be hungry for the word of God to be preached. The church is to pray for the Word of God to be preached. And not just in the abstract, but in the hearts of, well, me and all preachers of the Word. I, I heard um, John Piper say once that it's like there is a mine shaft that goes down behind this pulpit and every pulpit. And the church sets apart a man uniquely for the ministry of the word so that all week long he goes down dying to himself to mine gems and jewels to bring back up from the word of God to give to the people of God. I love that picture. And so all week long there's a wrestling of the soul in my soul and all preacher's souls and more and all manner of issues and problems and things going on You need to pray for us. The church is to guard and ensure that the word is preached. Do you remember in Galatians 1 how Paul holds the whole church community accountable for slipping into a false gospel of works righteousness? And it's not just the preacher and the pastors and elders that he holds accountable. It is the church he holds accountable. The church is to guard and ensure that the word is preached, which means guarding and praying for the preacher. And the church is to show up prepared, to show up hungry, to show up ready to feast. We have a collective charge implicit in this text to ensure faithful preaching of all of Christ from all of Scripture, that it is protected and promoted in the life of the church. that leads then to the second point. If there is the charge to preach, well, the question is, what is to be preached? Now, if you look in your Bible... Here in 2 Timothy, you see that, well, you probably, like me, I have paragraphs offset. Uh, there's a big number of four to signify that we're entering the chapter four. The, um, the, the translators have put in uh, heading summaries. That's all man-made additions to the Bible, right? Scriptures, or, or scriptures, chapters and verses are late additions. Think early 1400s. Why am I pointing this out? Because this is a horrible break. They did a bad job putting chapters and verses in this section because you read chapter 3 and say, oh, all done. Good devotions for the day. And we forget that chapter 3 is connected to chapter 4. Why am I making this point? Because chapter 3 tells us what the word is, and then chapter 4 tells us to preach that word. So the question and point number 2 is, what is preached? Well, look at the beginning of verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. Simple statement. Infinitely profound. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Just pause there. What do we preach? We preach the Bible. We preach all of inspired scripture, which is Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the 66 books of our Bibles. That's what we preach. And we're not preaching a mere book like any other book, nor is this simply a religious text among other texts. That claim is universe shaping that all scripture is breathed out by God. Some of your older translations may say all scripture is inspired by God. You see, the word in the Greek behind that is theopneustos, which is a invented word that Paul made up to describe what the Bible is, that it's God-spirited, or God-breathed. What does this mean? Why do we preach the Bible and not other things? The Bible is not records of man's religious experiences. The Bible is not hunches and spiritual speculations. The Bible is not unique guru-like insights of somebody who had religious experiences with God. No, the Bible is direct revelation from God. It's not revelation about God, it's revelation from him. What the Bible says, God says. So the Bible is God's verbal presence. And so when the word is preached, because that's a chief design that he has designed, that the church assembles, the Bible is opened, the book is, is made, laid bare, and then what it says is what is spoken, explained, and exhorted, and more in preaching. And God's Spirit, who inspired the book, is the one who uniquely works in the preaching of the book to accomplish things in our hearts. It's like when the word is preached, Jesus is walking around among us, so to speak to shepherd us with his word. That's why the Bible is dangerous. Because unlike any other book, the claim of the Bible is that it is a living book. And when we preach, when the book is open, the lion is uncaged. And he comes out. And he accomplishes his purposes. That's why God gifts and commands preaching. The power of preaching is not in the preacher. The authority of preaching is not in the preacher, although he bears an office. The power is in the Word of God and the Spirit of God accomplishing his purposes in the people of God. That's where the power and authority lies. That's why we preach the Bible. That's why a preacher is merely a herald. I stand here and say, Good news! Good news! The battle has been won, and Jesus is the victor, and He has atoned for our sins, and there is a way of salvation. There is a way of escape from wrath. Good news! That's what the job is. But it's a big book, and there's a lot to say. That's why preaching... At heart is merely saying what God says and setting forth Jesus in all of his glorious goodness from page one to page last. Because the whole book is about the gospel. So what is preached? We don't preach ourselves. We preach the Bible. We preach Christ. And because the word of God is living and active, it is always effective to accomplish God's will for our good and his glory. So, you might come in here, it's another Sunday, doing your religious obligations, don't really want to be here, but you have to, guilted into coming. Or maybe that you love Jesus, but your affection for the word is diminished. We go through those long seasons where the word is not savory to our souls and more. God has given gifted preaching to the church because preaching is this unique exercise where God has his way with us for his glory by further making us into the image of Christ. It just may be this morning that God grants you repentance to see that you have not been a husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church. And you have the glorious opportunity to repent. Or a wife who submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ to picture what the church looks like or to put off lying and put on truth-telling, or to put off stinginess and put on generosity, or to put off obstinance and put on submission to Christ and His way and more, you never know what's going to happen as God accomplishes His purposes in the preaching of His Word. That's why it's a dangerous task. And it's also an impossible task. Week in, week out, I can stand here and open this book and say these words, and I have no power to accomplish any of this in your life. It's not wit, wisdom or intellect or anything that I can say, it's the Word of God having His way among us. But that leads to the next question. if we know we preach the Bible and not bring in other books and things and different ideas and just kind of have a portfolio of, of um, an intellectual exercise, we preach the Bible, that point number three then, who is preached? Who is preached? And for that, look again at 2 Timothy 3.15. Listen to what is said here. The apostle says to Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's referring to the Old Testament at this point. Which are able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that when you sit down to read Obadiah, or Micah, or Leviticus, or Numbers, or Proverbs, Esther, when you sit down to read the Old Testament, it is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or put differently, Luke 24, verses 44 to 48 Jesus, risen from the grave, appears to the disciples, and listen to what Jesus says about the Old Testament. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, it's the threefold division of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then Jesus "...opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written," this is what is written in the Old Testament, "...thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all ethne, to the Gentiles, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things." That's the Old Testament. That is Jesus' summary of what you take away from reading your Old Testament. It's all about him. So when we ask who is preached, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Jesus' words are so radical because they will revolutionize your reading of the Bible. What do I mean? Because the main character of the Bible is not you. And the central storyline of the Bible is not you. The main character of the Bible is God in Christ. And the central storyline of the Bible is the gospel of the triune God in Christ. That's why it's been said the Bible is not primarily about you and what you should do. The Bible is primarily about God and Christ and what he has and is doing for us in him. That means that the person of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, the provisions of Jesus, the praises of Jesus are the sum and substance of the Bible. And since we preach the Bible, that means faithful preaching, the sum and substance of it, will be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you should expect. That's what you should be hungry for. More of Jesus, more of his grace, understanding how the whole Bible fits together and tells the story. All the texts flow to the cross and they flow from the empty tomb and all point back to that hill. And how do they connect? I remember when I... My first year in seminary, I heard uh, the preaching professor say this, and it changed the direction of my life. He said, "To preach a sermon such that a Mormon, or Jehovah's Witness, a New Age guru, an atheist." Anyone who is not a Christian, to preach a sermon such that a non Christian could come and say yes and amen to everything you just preached, you did not preach a Christian sermon. It means something to preach the Bible, to preach the gospel. You see, we believe in one God and three persons the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing. One God in three. And that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became incarnate, truly God, truly man, named Jesus, and this Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Him. And that He has done for us what we cannot and will not and never will do for ourselves, worked salvation, to offer it to us by grace through faith. That Jesus lived perfectly loving the Father and fulfilling all righteousness and obedience to the Father. That Jesus took all of our, our guilt, our sins against God, our cosmic crimes. Jesus took them all upon himself on that cross and died for us. Buried in the grave, three days dead, Then rising victoriously and violently, conquering Satan, sin, death, curse of the law, and more, Jesus rises for our justification so that by faith we can be adopted as daughters and sons of the Father, filled with the Spirit, now the body and bride of Christ and temple of God. That's what we preach. And it's in all the messages that lead to and flow from, as I said, the hill of the skull. We preach Christ because it's Christian preaching. And we preach Christ because the whole Bible is about Jesus. Do you know why we preach Christ? Because of Romans 1.16. Do you remember that passage? We preach Christ because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Praise God, you are not the power of God for salvation. Your intellect, your ability to argue, your ability to marshal apologetics, we need apologetics, your ability to to marshal all those things, you cannot save anybody, and nobody can save themselves. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And when it's believed, that person is saved. That's why we preach Christ. Why do we preach Christ? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10:17. Where does faith come from? Do we marshal it up in our own hearts? No. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's transmitted to us, and then we exercise it. So we preach all of the inspired, Christ-focused, word of God- That's Christian preaching. That's what sees lost people saved and saved people made into the image of Christ. That's why it is the central, essential feature of a church. The sin qua non, non non-negotiable, we must have it. And that's also why the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. he He is going eventually to his death. He meets with the elders on the beach, the elders of Ephesus, the elders of this church that Timothy is at. And here's what he says to them when he was planting the church about that time. Verse 26 of Acts 20, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. Pause. Why would he say that? Why does he need to say that? He, and and what, makes him, what would make him guilty Of the blood of all. And what would make him innocent of the blood of all. The answer is in verse 27. For. I did not shrink. From declaring to you. The whole counsel of God. So do you see the logic. Paul would be guilty. Of the blood of all. If he did not declare. The whole counsel of God. In the office that he had as an apostolic. Pastor as it were. So preaching all of Christ from all of Scripture means preaching the whole counsel of God on all that God says. What does that mean? That means not only preaching the whole story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 as it unfolds chapter by chapter and book by book, the single story of the gospel, but it also means preaching at times, lifting up what the Bible says on a certain subject and fitting it together, such as the church and more, But because there's the whole counsel of God, this is why the normal pattern that you should expect of faithful preaching is expositional preaching. What does that mean? Expositional simply means expose. That preaching at heart is just saying what God says. We expose what this passage means, apply it to our lives, rebuke, correct, exhort, and teach, Move on to the next passage, rinse, repeat, over and over again. And that's also why moving through books of the Bible, passage by passage, is the regular diet of a church so that we would hear the whole counsel of God. And if there is a topical series such as this one, it ought to still be expositional, exposing what God says on a certain topic, the doctrinal series. The key is faithfulness to the text, saying what God says, and relates to the whole Bible. Why am I saying this? Because we're under this third point of who is preached. In the last 15, 20 years, so many preachers have had public falls from the office and removed from their churches, and much of it was centered around them preaching themselves and not Christ. And they preached themselves under the guise of preaching Christ. Case in point, listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Something that I was front and center for during those years when I lived up in the Pacific Northwest. So many preachers will use themselves as the positive example and perfect illustration of how they fulfill all the, what the text says. And they end up preaching themselves and making a people built around that person. We are people who are built around a person, and his name is Jesus. And that's who we look to. So we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ crucified. And expositional preaching protects the church from a preacher hobby-horsing on pet doctrines in every sermon and also avoiding the hard truths that our culture hates, such as gender, sexuality, marriage, and more. What we say is an offense to a uh, social media elite and political elite and more who hate what we have to say. And so what we do in the face of them hating what we say is preach the word because they can be rescued from the snares of the devil and the lies that they believe. This means, though, that there's an expectation upon you as a believer in Christ. The expectation the text sets sets upon us is that as a Christian, you need to put yourself in a position so that you can get the whole counsel of God across your whole life, because it, it never ends. And the Sunday pulpit is not the end of the teaching ministry of a church, it's the beginning of the teaching ministry of the church. So praise God, right now in the fireside room, Jeff Newman is teaching on what it means to, Uh, in the book of James, to confess your sins to one another. And on Wednesday nights, we have our two classes on how to help people uh, change, to be an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer, and then the text and canon class and more. All of these things are to the singular end that we would proclaim and teach the whole counsel of God that we would be equipped and competent in Him. And so who is preached and what is preached? The implication is that you are responsible as a believer to place yourself under the teaching and preaching ministries of the church so that you might grow in Christ. Why? Because it's how Jesus builds the church. His word reverberates among the saints and binds us and builds us and blesses us together as we hear his word preached, taught, exhorted, and more, and we change. And this leads to the last point, the benefits of preaching. The benefits of preaching. Now here, we need to look at the negative. There's a sober warning that speaks to a day that we're already in, and then there's the benefits of how Preaching blesses us. So let's look at the negative piece. Look down in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is the negative component. That's going to make the benefits all the more beneficial because they're protective benefits. 2 Timothy 3 and 4, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure healthy teaching or sound teaching but instead having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths you see how sobering that is and this is alive and well in the world today that what will happen is that people will bind together and in essence, they will not want the whole counsel of God in Christ. It will not be their desire and it will not be their devotion. That they will want to be entertained and not told that they need to change or told to repent, that sin is sin and that sin is not beautiful and more. They, they will not want this and that is well, old Israel serves as an example for us. Israel, time and again, First Kings, Second Kings, down through the books, you will see that Israel was always attempting one of two things, to either just disregard the Bible altogether. Remember the story of Josiah, a good king? They had lost the Bible for over a generation. Like, literally, they did not have one. And some faithful priests a generation before found a scroll, put it and put it in, in the rocks of the temple, and they were doing renovations, and they said, We've found a book. And they read it to the king, and revival happened. But they lost the book. Some churches don't have the book. Some churches don't even have the book present in their non pulpit on the flat table. They don't have that. But what did Israel do? they were characterized by always trying to synchronize their faith, the Old Testament, with the philosophies and the religions and the cultural values of the day. And the philosophies and the religions and cultural values of the day cannot be synced with God's word. So that always meant that they were compromised, diluting, distorting, and denying God's word. You know why? You can't synchronize divine fiat with the devil's ways. You cannot synchronize darkness with light, and you cannot synchronize life with death, and you cannot synchronize Jesus with the people who intend to kill him. So we guard the word. And so Paul is warning here in these verses 3 and 4 that in similar fashion, people will heap up teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, a repentance-free form of Christianity. With the rise of the seeker-sensitive movement born in the 50s, Robert Shuler, Crystal Cathedral, and then going on into Willow Creek and these different churches and this mega-church thing, take, taking censuses of the, of the unbelieving community around and then not preaching sin because it was offensive. What did Jesus do? He offended people because he called them to repent of their sins. We must hold on to, and guard the Word of God. So much preaching today passes as basically verbal hallmark cards and tips and techniques for your best life now devoid of any trust in Christ and repentance towards Christ. Because for them, the book becomes about us and not what God has done for us in Christ. If preaching is defined as preaching all of Christ from all of Scripture, then what becomes of moralistic and therapeutic preaching? Where God really just cares about how you feel. That's therapeutic preaching, and he wants you to feel great. Or moralistic preaching. Just as David took his five smooth stones, you need to get five smooth stones and slay the giants in your life. The story of David and Goliath is how you cannot destroy the giants in your life. Jesus can. And he has the stones to kill the giants, and you're dependent upon him. David and Goliath is about Christ and what he's done, not about you and what you should do, and more. So positively, we must be on guard against the temptation in our own hearts to have itching ears and not want sin to be called sin, called to repentance, and more. But positively, we preach Christ to stay focused and faithful To Christ in his glories. And in doing so, the church together we guard the Word of God because it is the Word of God, inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, and more. And we feast on preaching. So here's the benefits. We'll go through them quickly. Look at this rich and righteous reality of preaching the word and what happens to our souls. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 17, through 17. These qualities of the word are exhibited in preaching. We looked at this already. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you want to know how to get right with God, you listen to his word preached. But then it goes on to verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, and here it is, listen to these words, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, he's talking to the preacher, but he's also speaking to all the church of how the word of God arms us. There's four benefits here. We're gonna look at others next time together, Lord willing. But the four that stand out, note these words in your Bibles, profitable, complete, equipped, training in righteousness. Those four things is what happens in your soul when you sit under the word preached. What does profitable mean? How is the word of God profitable for us? It's not meant financially. It's meant as a beneficial use. The same word is used elsewhere To speak of the value of physical exercise, it's profitable, it's valuable for your body. So when we hear the word our soul's profit, there's value as the word of God changes us, or complete and equipped. Very similar, there's synonyms basically in the Greek, very similar ideas, to be complete means... That the word of God, when you ingest it into your souls, because man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. When we ingest and feast on the word, the idea behind complete is to be competent to a task. Like a doctor goes through medical school to be competent to the task of medicine, for the believer to be under the word of God preached and to receive it with humble hearts of faith, we are made competent to be doctors of ministry. And the idea of equipped is similar, but here the idea is sufficiency. You simply don't need anything else. The Bible really is good enough. God really is smart enough. He really has given us. He really is equipping us with his word. It's it's really what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 1. Listen to this. I love this verse. His divine power, Holy Spirit, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not in the abstract, but it says through the knowledge. And that's Bible. Bible understanding through the Bible knowledge of Jesus who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is what the word of God does to you. It, it gives you everything that you need for life and godliness. Are, do you have deficiencies in your life? Yes, you do. Welcome to church. We have deficiencies. We are needy. We are creatures and we need the creator to speak into us. His word outfits us with everything you need for life and godliness. And everything that you turn to outside of the word to try to get life and godliness will not give you life and godliness, insofar as it's not in keeping with the word of God. The word of God has all that we need. It really is sufficient. So, and fourth, that's what it means for training in righteousness. The same language here of training is is, is used of rearing children or getting an education, that... To be righteous means that we are becoming more and more like Christ. We are positionally righteous in Jesus, but practically day by day through sanctification we're becoming more like Jesus. Here's the question. Do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want to honor your Savior? Then the logic of 2 Timothy 3 and 4 is this. Sit under the faithful preaching of the word of God. Do you want to know Christ's truth and be set free by his truth? Then go to the word of God. Do you want to overcome sin in your life and to put it to death by the the ability of the Spirit? Then come to the word of God to know how to put off sin and put on Jesus. Do you want to put on the mind of Christ to know all things truly? Then go to the word preached. All that you need to live, all that you need to navigate God's purposes in your life are found in the Spirit-empowered Word, and God designed, most centrally and essentially, this Word to be proclaimed. Praise God for that. But maybe you have come here this morning to consider Jesus and investigate His claims. You may have walked in these doors and you have done your best to suppress that nagging, low-grade guilt that plagues your soul. And in those quiet moments and dark times of your life, that guilt pops back up and you see it and you feel it. Or the shame that causes you to hang your head of those, those things that you have done and things that have been done to you and things that you've said and more and relationships you've ruined and the shame that plagues you, you have come to the right place. Because there's a shame remover. There is a guilt remover. His name is Jesus. That's why we've gathered. He wants to bring you from death to life and dark to light. He can rescue you. You cannot rescue yourself. And friend, with all due respect, you will continue to shipwreck your life so long as you resist Christ but he is a willing savior. He's already done the work. He's already gone to the cross. He's already been buried. He's already risen and he's coming back and he will judge you for your sin or declare that your sin has already been judged on him on the cross. Which would you prefer? Come to Jesus. Renounce your sin. Repent of them and turn to him. And be saved. And as strange as the Bible says, His blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That means the stain of His blood stains over the stains of your sin. And as strange as that, it, that image is, that is the invitation to you now. He is a willing Savior. You cannot outsin His grace but the time is short you can walk out these doors and drop dead come to jesus and those of us who know jesus the aim of his word this morning is to show us the power the centrality the purpose that we have both to guard and to promote the preaching of the word and that we all have the responsibility to sit under the word preached as a people Why? Because Jesus forms and reforms, blesses, builds, and binds us together through the word preached. That's why we gather. That's what's essential and central. There's more, but that's at at the heart. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We do pray if there's any friends here who are have not yielded to you and bowed the knee to you, King Jesus, grant them the grace to do so and to cry out to you, Lord, I am yours, save me. And they would walk out these doors as a joyful follower of Jesus, forever forgiven of their sins. And for those of us who do follow you, Lord, wherever our hearts are hard, wherever our hearts are entertaining sin, with the grace of your word preached, focuses on King Jesus such that we see him and his shining glory and humble ourselves under your mighty hand, and casting all our cares at your feet because you care for us. And that we as a church will be known for being faithfully guarding and promoting the proclamation of you, Jesus, from all of your word. In whose name we pray, amen.